Section 33 of A Life's Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tech Savvy. A Life's Morning by George Gissing. Section 33. Chapter 26. Midday. Once more at the Furs, Wilfred had decided to make this his abode. He was near enough to London to allow of his going backwards and forwards as often as might be necessary. His father's townhouse offered the means of change for Emily, and supplied him with a piété in time of session. By limiting his attendance at the house as far as decency would allow, he was able to enjoy with a small interruption the quiet of his home in Surrey, and growing certainty that a life of the present parliament would be short encouraged him in looking forward of the day when the politics could no longer exist for him he and emily established themselves at the firs towards the end of december having spent a week with mr athel on their return from the continent emily's health had improved but there was no likelihood that she would ever be other than a delicate flower to be jealously guarded from the sky's ruder breath by him to whom she was a life within life. Ambition, as he formerly understood, it had no more meaning for Wilfred. The fine ador of his being rejected grosser nourishment, and burned in altar flame toward the passion-pale woman whom he after all called wife. Emily was an unfailing inspiration. By her side, the nobler zeal of his youth renewed itself. In the light of a pure soul he saw the world as poetry, and strove for that detachment of the intellect which in Emily was a gift of nature. She, Emily, Emily Athel, as she joyed to write herself, moved in a new sphere like a spirit humbled by victory over fate. It was a mild winter, the Surrey hills were tender against the brief daylight, and the gardens breathed the freshness of evergreens. When the sun trembled over the landscape for a short hour, Emily loved to stray as far as that hollow on the heath where she had sat with Wilfred years ago and heard him for the first time speak freely of his aims and his hopes. That spot was sacred, as she stood there beneath the faint blue of the winter sky. All the exquisite sadness of life, the memory of those whom death had led him to his kindly haven, the sorrows of newborn love, the dear heartache, for Vu passed into eternity, touched the deepest fountains of her nature, and made dim her eyes. She would not have had lived life other than it was given to her, for she had learned the secrets of infinite passion in the sunless valleys of despair. She rested. In the last few months she had traversed a whole existence. Repose was needful that she might assimilate all her new experiences and range in due order the gifts which joy had lavishly heaped upon her. The skies of the south, the murmur of blue seas on shows of glorious name, the shrines of art, the hallowed scenes where earth's greatest have loved and wrought, these were no longer a dream with her bodily eyes she had looked upon, Greece and Italy, and to have done so was a consecration. It cast a light upon her brows. Talk to me of Rome. Those were always her words when Wilfred came to her side in the evening. Talk to me of Rome as you alone can. And as Wilfred recalled their life in the world's holy of holies, she closed her eyes for the full rapture of inner light, 
and her heart sang praise. Wilfred was awed by his blessedness. There were times when he scarcely dared to take in his own, that fine moulded hand which was the symbol of life made perfect. Emily uttered thoughts which made him fear to profane her purity by his touch. She realized to the uttermost his ideal of womanhood, nonetheless, so that it seemed no child would be born of her to trouble the exclusiveness of their love. He clad her in queenly garments and did homage at her feet. Her beauty was all for him, for though Emily could grace any scene, she found no pleasure in society, and hours of absence from home were to Wilfred full of anxiety to return. All their plans were for solitude. Life was too short for more than the inevitable concessions to the outside world. But one morning in February, Emily's eye fell upon an announcement in the newspaper which excited in her a wish to go up a town. Among the list of singers at a concert to be given that day, she had caught the name of Miss Beatrice Redwing. It was Saturday. Wilfred had no occasion for leaving home, and already they had enjoyed in advance the two unbroken days. "'But I should indeed like to hear her,' Emily said, "'and she seems to sing so rarely.' "'She has only just returned to England,' Wilfred remarked. They had heard of Beatrice having been in Florence a week or two prior to their own stay there. She was travelling with the Baxendales. Emily was anxious to meet her, and Wilfred had held out a hope that this might come about in Italy, but circumstances had proved adverse. "'Have you seen her?' Emily inquired. Her husband had not. He seemed at first a little disinclined to go up for the concert, but on Emily's becoming silent, he hastened to give a cheerful acquiescence. "'Couldn't we see her tomorrow?' she went on to ask. "'No doubt we can. It's the only the facing of my aunt's drawing-room on a Sunday afternoon.' "'Oh, surely that is needless, Wilfred. Couldn't we go and see her quietly? She would be at home in the morning, I should think.' "'I should think so.' We'll make inquiries tonight. They left home early in the afternoon and procured tickets on their way from the station to Mr. Athol's. Their arrival being quite unexpected, they found that Mr. Athol had left town for a day or two. It was all that Emily needed for the completing of her pleasure. Her father-in-law was scrupulously polite in his behavior to her. But the politeness fell a little short as yet of entire ease, and a conversation with him involved effort. She ran a risk of letting Wilfred perceive the gladness with which she discovered an empty house. He did, in fact, attribute to its true cause the light-heartedness she showed as they sat together at dinner, and smiled to think that he himself shared in the feeling of relief. There were reasons why he could not look forward to the evening with unalloyed happiness, but the unwanted gaiety which shone on Emily's face and gave a new melody to her voice moved him to tenderness and gratitude. He felt that it would be well to listen again to the music of the strong heart whose pain had been his bliss. He overcame his ignoble anxieties and went to concert as to a sacred office. Their seats, owing to lateness in applying for them, were not in the best part of the hall. Immediately behind them was the first row of a cheaper section, and two men of indifferent behavior were seated there within earshot. They were discussing the various names upon the program, as if for the enlightenment of their neighbors. When Emily had been sitting for a few minutes, she found that it had been unwise to leave her mantle in the cloakroom. 
there was a bad draught. Wilfred went to recover it. Whilst waiting, Emily became aware that the men behind her were talking of Miss Redwing. She listened. "'She's married, I think, eh?' said one. "'What's to have been, you mean? Why wasn't it you told me the story? Oh, no, it was Drummond. Drummond knows her people, I think. "'What story, eh?' "'Why, she was to have married a member of Parliament.' What the deuce was his name? Something had reminded me of a racehorse, I remember. Was it Blair? No, Ethel. That's the name. Why didn't it come off then? Oh, the honorable member found somebody he liked better. It was not the end of the conversation, but just when the conductor rose in his place and there was hushing, Wilfred returned at the same moment. He noticed that Emily shivered as he put the covering on her shoulders. When he was seated, she looked at him so strangely that he asked her in a whisper, What was the matter? Emily shook her head and seemed to fix her attention on the music. Beatrice Redwing was the third singer to come forward. While she sang, Emily frequently looked at her husband. Wilfred did not notice it. He was absorbed in listening. Towards the end, Emily, too, lost thought of everything, save the magic with which the air was charged. There was vociferous demand for an encore, and Beatrice gave another song. When the midway interval was reached, Emily asked her husband if he could leave the hall. She gave no reason, and Wilfred did not question her. When they were in a carriage, she said the draught had been so severe. Wilfred kept silence. He was troubled by the inexplicable misgivings. Servants hastened to light the drawing-room on their arrival earlier than expected. Emily threw off her wraps and seated herself near the fire. "'Do you suffer from the chill?' Wilfred asked, approaching her as if with diffidence. She returned her face to him, gazing with a sadness, which was much more natural to her than the joy of two hours ago. It was not the draught that made me come away, she said with gentle directness. I must tell you that it was, Wilfred. I cannot keep any of my thoughts from you. Tell me, he murmured, standing by her. She related the substance of the conversation she had overheard, always keeping her eyes on him. Is it true? It is true, Emily. Between him and her there could be no paltry embarrassments. A direct question touching both so deeply could be answered only in one way. If Emily had suffered from a brief distrust, his look and voice, sorrowful but frank as though he faced omniscience, restored her courage at once. There might be grief henceforth, but it was shared between them. He spoke on and made all plain. Then, at the last, I felt it to be almost impossible that you should net some day, you know. I could not tell you, perhaps on her account, as much as on my own. But now I may say what I had no words for before. She loved me, and believed that I could return her love. When I met you, how could I marry her? A stranger sees my conduct. You have heard how. It is you who alone can judge me. 
and she came to me in that way emily murmured she could not only lose you but give her hand to the woman who robbed her and take my part with everyone force herself to show a bright face do her best to have it understood what it was she herself who broke off the marriage all this dare i go to her wilfred would it be cruel to go to her i wish to speak oh not one word that would betray my knowledge but to say that i love her do you think i may go i cannot advise you emily wait until the morning then do what you think best she decided to go beatrice still lived with mrs burke's and it was probable that she would be alone on sunday morning it proved to be so wilfred waited more than an hour for emily's return when at length she entered to him he saw that there was deep content on her countenance emily embraced her husband and laid her head upon his breast he could hear her sigh gently she wishes to see you wilfred she received you kindly i will tell you all when i have had time to think of it but she was sorry you did not come with me will you go she will be alone this afternoon they held each other in silence then emily raised an odd face asked softly where does she find her strength is her nature so spotless that the self-sacrifice is her highest joy wilfred i could have asked pardon at her feet but my heart bled for her dearest you least of all should wonder at the strength which comes of high motive oh but to surrender you to another and to witness that other's happiness was not my self-denial perhaps a form of selfishness i only shrank from love because i dreaded the reproaches of my own heart i did good to no one was only anxious to save myself she i dare not think of it my nature is so weak take your love from me and you take my life wilfred's heart leaped with the wild joy of a mountain torrent she will not always be alone he said perhaps with the readiness of the supremely happy to prophesy smooth things for all there came the answer of gentle reproach after loving you wilfred beautiful that is how it seems to you there is second love often truer than the first then the first was not love indeed if i had never seen you again what meaning would love have ever had for me apart from your name i only dreamed of it till i knew you then it was love first and last wilfred my own my husband my love till i die end of section 33 chapter 26 end of a life's morning by george jissing recording by tech savvy www.techsavvy.wordpress.com